Hey, this is Marcia Epstein on Talk With Me, and I'm in Lawrence, Kansas, getting this opportunity to spend some time talking with a guest. Maybe talk with me, who could be lots of different places across this United States of America, if we're that. I'm not sure if we're that, but anyway. Um, and I've also had the delight of dipping south to talk with Mark Statman, who Oaxaca, Mexico, and as I say that, I know there has been some nature that's been extreme, and lots of people in his area, and then heading up north to my buddy Wolfgang Karstens near Edmonton, Alberta, and Canada, so spanned lots of geography with guests because people lead to other people, lead to other people, and I hope that's the way it is for other people in their lives. I've, I've been thinking a lot about connections, um, ways that I've met people who are important in my life. And I will say that I, I kind of moved from what was a world focused only on, not only, but primarily on nonprofit work in the state of Kansas, in my home community of Lawrence, Kansas. And then I took a little dabble into the creek around here of arts and realized it wasn't a creek, it was a giant river that connected all over the place. And that's really where Talk With Me is in this, as I now mix metaphors, at the intersection of art and mental health. Mental health work is, is who I am, what I do with people, um, specifically lots of work in suicide prevention and suicide bereavement support and some special work with young uh, teens and adults who are trans and gender non-conforming, doing stuff that not everybody wants to do. Why? I don't know, but you know, everybody, everybody deserves compassionate and skilled help when they need it. So I position myself into that and then do this talk with me thing. So talk with me is fuel for my other work. It's a delight. It always includes some laughter. It sometimes literally takes my breath away when I hear words from some of my guests. Um, and I hope that you enjoy this hour as much as I do. Today, my guest is coming to us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he is Scott Silsby. Scott, welcome. Hi, hey. thanks for having me. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to do this. It's always fun. And, and as I mentioned to you before we started, well, gosh, today's Tuesday, September 26, 2017. And yesterday I was talking to one of your fellow writers in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Disha Filia. And that was a total, just a total coincidence that these shows ended up close together in creation. And actually your work is very different. Pittsburgh is clearly this amazing literary community and more. And, and I do always give a shout out to people that website that you all have told me about, litzburg.com, since that's a great way for people who are living in that area or are going to be visiting that area to find out things that are going on. So litzburg.com is, is a place to, to know where you might want to head to. Anyway. Scott, so tell us a little bit about you. There will be people who say, hey, I know him. He's my buddy. I've read his books. I love hearing him. And there are other people who's, who are like, don't think I've heard that name yet. So who's this guy? So who is this guy, Scott Silsby? <laughs> uh, 
Um, sure, yeah. So a little bit about me. Um, I uh, live in Pittsburgh, and I work for a used bookstore here. And um, when I'm not working, I uh, am writing or playing music um, or going to readings, pretty much. <laughs> right. So in a lot of ways, words are your life. Books and I, when you say yeah. writing music, music with lyrics? Yep. Yep. Okay. You got it. <laughs> Reading, writing, cool stuff. You, I know that I have a couple different books of yours, and we'll talk about those specifically. How how long have you been writing in general? Like when you started writing stories, poems, whatever you started with? Yeah, um, I started writing uh, with poems um, when I was a teenager. And um, I guess I started getting pretty serious about it. Uh, like during my undergrad years, I started taking uh, writing workshops. And uh, I, I tried my hand with uh, stories, but um, poetry has been my main focus, really. So um, so I, I've been writing pretty seriously for uh, just under 20 years now, I guess. That's a long time. And how does that yeah, parallel yeah. Your, your music? since music is important to you too. Yeah, yeah, music's always been important to me as well. Um, so I've played in, in bands for years and years, and um, yeah, at one point I, I think I kind of tried to uh, focus on, on writing and not, not on music so much, but um, I feel like lately I've been able to, to do both, um, which, is, which is pretty cool, because I, <laughs> I think at some point, Excuse me. I think at some point I uh, felt like I had to make a choice, you know, choose between the two. And, uh, but now I feel like I have the best of both worlds. I get to do both. Very cool. Was one, did one kind of lead to the other or did you pretty much start doing both around the same time? Um, I think they both, uh, I think I started working on both of them. Uh, both, both of my teen years, uh, picked up a guitar when I was like 16 um, and um, you know there's a kind of uh, similar but different um, feel to me uh, with songwriting and poem writing it's it's similar but different you know and I so it, it's it's interesting because it's I think it's similar motivation uh, that fuels both but uh -huh. um, just kind of different output you know <laughs> So, since you identify motivation, similar motivation, will you tell us a little bit about that for you? What your motivation is with your music and your writing? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I think. I mean, it's definitely you know just like an like expression that I I, uh, I feel the urge to to get out of me. Um, but uh, but it, it's kind of changed over the years, and I think one thing that uh, I really like about, um, about about the whole creative process now is that for me it feels like it's a kind of uh, like a documentation, like um, you know, like I, I'm it's it's not it's not like journaling, but it's kind of similar. Like I I can look back on uh, the songs I'm writing, the poems I'm writing from years past, and I can kind of access where I was at that certain point, you know. Uh -huh. 
So you've, um, so yeah, so the, do, the documentation. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine because I was just thinking it's documentation and it's but it's documentation in a creative way. Like yesterday when I was talking to Disha, one of the things we talked about was a certain um, piece of writing that she had done, and initially had done it in um, a long form that basically the feedback she got on it was that it was expressive, but it wasn't really a creative art piece, you know? And so I was yeah. just thinking about that, 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 that may be some of the differences in terms of, you know, if you were reviewing journals that you wrote it, the, the writing, the, the composition, whatever we want to call it might be different in feel, even though some of the same messaging came out. It's interesting how there are different ways, especially because um, for me, at least, reading your poetry is very much like reading a, a short story. Although here's, this is, this is me and I'm not saying everybody's like me and I'm not necessarily saying anybody's like me, but, but the thing to me that, that I think of that defines poetry is the way that lots is packed into the words. So even though I said that reading your poetry to me is much like reading a story, it's, it's there on the page, but it's also prompting lots of imagination in my brain about what this scene is like. You know, I'm, I'm filling in a lot of, of blanks. So it's, so it's, to me, it's engaging in a very special way. You know, I, I read whichever poem I'm reading and, and I'm envisioning the people and, you know, there might be a, a bar scene reference. And, and so then I'm thinking about, you know, the bars that I've been in and kind of the sounds and the smells and, you know, glancing across the room, what people look like. You know, it's like it's, it's your words become a prompt for this bigger image so I, I I hope I haven't offended by saying your poems are like stories. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a cool uh, interpretation. I haven't really you know heard that before, and um, yeah, that's that's that's, um, that's interesting to me. I like I like, uh, I, I, I like um, definitely telling stories and in, in my poems um, and kind of creating creating scenes like that and. Um, uh-huh. But I like what you say about like how it uh, kind of sparks your imagination. Yeah, that's why I really love reading compared to watching films. I it's that's it's not really often that I sit down and actually watch a film, and most uh-huh. of the time I you know that's that's that unfortunate choice of watching something on a screen at home and simultaneously doing other things or paying attention to other things as opposed to immersing in that experience in a dark room with a giant screen and that's really the whole thing. Um, but anyway, so I wanna just to, to continue this, this story poem thing and, and to, to fill that out some, I wonder if you would be willing to read a poem from Muskrat Friday Dinner and I'm asking for a specific poem <laughs> because I want to hear you yeah. read it, and also I I I want it to be able to talk about it as some of the some of the ways 
that even in our little email conversation, that it's been a reminder of how how your poetry sparks other kinds of connections and thoughts and images. Because this isn't a particularly long poem, you know, I'm looking at it on the page, it takes up about half a page. Uh -huh. But it really took me a lot of places. So, so if you would, that's that poem, Old Writers Talking About Old Writers. Yeah, okay, yeah, I have it here. Okay, here goes. Old Writers Talking About Old Writers. Bob and I were at the cage after Hemingway's reading, and I was telling him about how I wanted to make a book or a CD or something called that. We'd just seen Ochester, and after the reading, Ed treated us with some great stories about Harry Cruz, stories you could tell he had told over and over again to get the pacing right and to suck us all in and to know the right way to punchline. Maybe the book or whatever it is could be called Younger Writers Telling Stories About Old Writers Talking About Old Writers. I could ask Bob and Dave and Lori and Chris to tell some. And I could tell about Gerald Stern talking about Gilbert jumping over the cathedral hedges along Forbes Avenue. Or recount Chuck Kinder's tale about Richard Hugo and his big bowl of vanilla ice cream. It'd be nice to get some down so we don't lose them. Stories grow soft with time. Though sometimes we fill in the gaps with juicier details to make the story better making the story our own with the hope we don't lose the best parts. We don't sacrifice the real story as if we really know or care what that is. I love this poem. <laughs> so <laughs> I would, I would like you to tell us a little bit about it. There, there are lots of references in here that are obviously very personal for you. And, mm -hmm. and so, uh, so some readers are going to be people who, know every reference you make some like me are going to know some but not others right. tell a little bit about creating this poem okay yeah i mean this is pretty autobiographical uh me and my you know just about me and my buddy at the bar after a reading uh you know kind of pitching ideas um but uh but you know there's reflection that comes uh kind of like in the second stanza like um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I think, uh, it's partly just about writers, how writers love to tell stories, even when they're not like working on a story or a poem, it's like, they're kind of, it feels to me like they're kind of pitching ideas by, uh, by telling stories to other people to see what kind of reaction they get, you know? <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, so yeah, um, but, uh, there's a, yeah, a couple of, of, of poets name checked. Um, there was a, a guy that I really liked, a Pittsburgh poet named Jack Gilbert. And, uh, and I, I met him once, but before I met him, I met his, his friend, Jerry, Gerald Stern. And, uh, the, like, uh, I asked Gerald Stern, you know, tell me some Gilbert stories. And so, so I kind of referenced him telling me a, a, a brief Gilbert story and, um, there was a guy living in Pittsburgh named Chuck Kinder. He's down in Florida now, but he was a he was a fiction writer at University of Pittsburgh, and he he always loved to tell stories. And he would always tell this one about um, stopping by the poet Richard Hugo's house on I think it was a New Year's Eve, and uh, 
Richard Hugo giving up drinking, and so Chuck stopped by with a six-pack, and anytime he would take a, a drink of, of beer, Richard Hugo had this big bowl of ice cream, and he would just <laughs> take, a, take a big, big spoonful of vanilla ice cream and slurp it down like anytime Chuck slurped on his beer. So. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> It's to me. There's there's so much, you know. And and I think about it. It's funny because even this morning I was thinking differently. There's something different that came to my mind than when I first read it. And I'm talking about this not not because I think people really care what I think, or you know, but but because it to me it's that example of of how your words spark things and how they resonate with other experiences and how the the communication is way more than just this certain number of words on the page. And so one thing I was thinking about this morning for because of other parts of my my work, my life, is I was thinking similarly about that that storytelling of this person who knew this person who who is really revered um, from, you know, in essence, different generations of the same work. In, in yours, you're talking about and what I'm going to refer to as different generations of poets, the young poets possibly telling the, the stories of the old poets, telling the stories of the old poets, you know. So to me, that's three generations of poets. And I was thinking about that and in, in about the same kind of thing in the work that I do and the community that I'm part of um, around the work of suicide prevention and how how my experience as somebody who has been part of that particular community for a long time means that I have some direct contacts with some people that that the youngest generation of people in that don't have, you know, and 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 what is the value for people to experience those stories of this is something that I kind of in a middle generation of this work experienced with this person from a previous generation. You know, like like how we how we kind of build that history in a in a way that brings it into life now as opposed to it's just history. It has no relevance. The world has changed. So there's there's a lot that I was thinking about about the generational thing. And I was thinking about as as I mentioned to you an email when I when I first read this poem and fell in love with it, I was thinking about some of the stories I've heard from some of the writers who I've met whose writing maybe started in the 1960s. You know, they were kids then starting to write and there was lots going on and they're still writing now all these years later and they have stories and they're so great to hear, you know, whether they're <laughs> literally accurate or not, you know, you know, yeah, right. talking about this bizarre experience with William S. Burroughs and it's like, you know, this it's, it's cool to me. It's really cool to hear it from somebody who was, as was part of it rather than, you know, just reading some journal article or magazine article or whatever. So I love, right. I love the stories and I love, I, I think it's so important that we experience stories in that really personal way that, that we can relate to them. And so that's, that's how your work speaks to me is, is it draws me in. It, 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 it's not like I'm there doing it. You know, I, I know there's a distinction between what's on the page in my real life, but it, but it, it connects with me in a way that, that to me is really refreshing and it's fun and it's interesting and it creates a lot of thought about my own experiences and, and, you know, in similar environments or never in that environment, whatever. 
And that's always my hope when, when I'm doing these shows with people. My hope is that we're intriguing people with, I've not read this person's work yet, or maybe I read a long time ago and I don't really remember. I need to go back to this and see what this is, you know. I want people to, to feel as excited as I do about picking up something new to read and and what it where might take them, you know. I think well, yeah, I think we spend too much time on technology and there's a difference even to me in reading on the page and even better hearing somebody read their own work. I, I want people to experience that joy, that connection that happens. And and I experience yeah. a lot of that work. So okay, now I shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cool. Yeah. So how is it for you as a writer? And you know, obviously you're connected to a lot of other writers. How is it for you to to be exposed to other people's work? Um, yeah, it's great. I mean, I find it pretty essential at this point. I mean, um, uh, living in Pittsburgh, we've got a lot of we've got a good writing scene, and so there are a lot of readings and. Um, it's great for me. Um, I find it really inspirational for my own work. Like it, get, it really gets me um, going to, to you know, see my fellow writers doing good work, and kind of encourages me, um, motivates me, and uh, and um, yeah, and I always love getting exposed to new um, writers and new work. And so, um, like I was out kind of your way. Um, in April for the yeah. throwdown in uh, Kansas City, and and got to I mean there were so many so many writers there. Um, I got to meet a lot of people and see a lot of people I haven't um, ever heard read before. And so um, you mentioned uh, Bill Gaynor oh, when we were talking yeah. email, and he was great. Um, yeah. So I really enjoyed seeing him read and getting uh, copies of his books and. Yeah. Um, there was a guy, William Taylor Jr., who was out, and he was he was excellent. And um, R.A. Washington, who is yeah. from Cleveland, um, so not too far from me in Pittsburgh, but I had to go all the way out to Kansas City to <laughs> meet him, uh-huh. meet him, and see him read. And uh, he was an excuse me, he was another great uh, part of the whole the whole weekend. I really enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, and and for listeners, I will put the link, but. It in the past was called the Kansas City Poetry Throwdown, and there have been two of those events that were a whole weekends in like three days in April. The upcoming one in 2018 is likely to be in October and has been christened Fountain Verse, Casey Fountain Verse Small Press and Poetry Festival, something like that. I'll put a link in, but it's it's amazing because people coming in, and it's again, it's different generations of writers, lots of writers who also are associated with their own small presses. Um, and so talk about the publishing part as well as these opportunities to, to hang out with people, to hear them. And Prospero's books, huge shout out to Jason Reberg for being the core, one of the core people with all of this for all this time. Jameson Bales, who was in Kansas City, was organizing it with with uh, Jason and other people, and has since moved. 
And then, you know, we have this new, this exchange of poets because Damon Ritchie, who's moving to Kansas City from New Jersey, is also going to now be one of the core people with Fountainverse, all that organizing stuff, which is huge for anybody who has ever tried or succeeded in hosting a poetic event. As we sometimes say, it's much like herding cats. It's not real easy. <laughs> to get all those commitments, you know, like, yes, but we need to get definite now, you know? <laughs> I speak from my experience with that. But, but this is a huge thing, and people coming in from all parts of the country. And, and again, that different generation thing. Bill Gaynor is one of those who's been writing for a long time and graciously, warmly welcomes young writers into, you know, his experience and and sharing what he can. He's he's such a sweetheart, and it's that's that's a great thing for people to experience. Anyway, for sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so you you found some neighbors as well as some friends that are new from other places by being part of that. And so yeah, you know, one of the things I think about even within the Pittsburgh community is is also the very different types of writing people are doing like. One of the people I think of in your community is Don Wentworth, who has these amazing haiku forms that he writes. Yeah. So yep. even much, much shorter than yours. And and lots of writers I know who are in between there. I'm I'm uh, I've become connected with as a set of people in particular with uh, Wolfgang Karstens and his Epic Writes Press and and their style yeah. of writing, which is really spare and and full of energy, explosive, as Wolf would say, you know, and it's like we get to like it different things, different types. But how is that for you as a writer? You know, you, you come across people whose writing style is a little bit similar to yours, might be very different, all these different possibilities. How does that work with you and whatever comes next from your pen or keyboard, however you write? <laughs> yeah. Um... It's all, uh, it, it all helps me, um, and, and like my, my style, it kind of influence. I feel like it influences my style in ways. Um, yeah, you mentioned Don Wentworth and he's one of my, my favorite Pittsburgh writers. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, he does these, uh, really brief poems. Um, you know, some look like haikus, some are haikus. Uh, sometimes he'll do a like one line poem, like he calls it a mono stitch and, uh, and it's just, uh, for me, it's, it's great because um, seeing how people approach the poem differently just kind of makes me think about poetry differently. And so, um, you know, I've got some, some shorter poems in this Muskrat uh, book that I think were probably influenced by uh, seeing Don Reed and uh, reading his books and mm -hmm really appreciating like how he's able to uh his the economy of his language you know how he's able yeah. to say something very large with just a few words yeah, yeah. <laughs> so That's cool. and i want people to 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 hear i mean i'm going to say titles and and then i'd love for you to to read but one of the things i love is the intrigue of the names of your books and also that you have three books from three wonderful small presses 
So unattended fire from Sixth Gallery Press, River Underneath the City from Low Ghost Press. I say that I say that slowly because the first time I heard it said I logo press, <laughs> low ghost press. <laughs> right. And and must have uh -huh. Friday dinner, your new one from White Gorilla Press. So I, I love right. that the names and also these different small presses you're working with with different different people who are doing lots of cool publications. So so speak a little bit about that uh, in terms of writing, publishing these small presses, and then I would love for you to share more poetry. So I don't want to do all talk and no readings from you. But I want to invite you and I want our listeners to know there are these three books um, from these three small presses and it's so cool to to experience them. And when you can, you know, buy them. If you see Scott at a reading, Scott Silsby, if you um, can get the book from the the small press that did it do that if you can't check with your independent bookstore and see if they can get it for you and if you need to go to the big internet suppliers but when you can get it closer <laughs> to stores you really are doing more to fuel um local art art in general so anyway that's my thing so you writing <laughs> publication these small presses and some some poetry from whichever books you would like to share Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, I really love the, the small press. There's a lot of, I mean, it feels like, you know, great new small presses are popping up every day. And yeah, you mentioned that Epic Rights. Uh, I've become familiar with them. They do that really cool chapbook series. And, um, chapbook series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, there's a guy from Erie, Pennsylvania, I really like, named Matt Borkson, who's on. Yeah. Uh, he's he's got some really great stuff on Epic Rights, and yeah, it's fun how you can like, you know, find one book on a small press, and uh, you know, realize that they've done other books and get the other books, and you know, you kind of find a an aesthetic, and that's always a lot of fun to like explore a new press. You know, it's like kind of getting obsessed with a record label, which I've also yeah. done. <laughs> is also a little hint to people who are sending work for publication make sure you know the if it's a press make sure you know their work you need to read what they're putting out so you know whether what you're doing that that thing that you're trying to get in print now is a good fit for that particular press um that's yep. i will say that's you know that's something um, to to be really clear on, I love. I don't know if you know Scott Thomas Outlaw, who is in Georgia, and his his uh, website is seventeen, the number seventeen, Numa. And Scott even has on his uh, resources in his website this kind of this list of places that that uh, different kinds of places for reading and and submitting work. And he said he he followed the trail of the poets who he was reading you know, well, where is this person published? And so you know, uh -huh. talking about things that way. So anyway, so, so you have three different books, three different small presses. How did that happen? <laughs> uh, well, okay. So the first one, Unattended Fire, was on Six Gallery Press. They're a local Pittsburgh press. And uh, um, my buddy Chris Collins, um, he had a, a couple of books in there. And at some point he said, I think the editor's looking for more stuff so you should send them a manuscript and so I did that and that's how unattended fire happened and 
city. Um, River Underneath the City is on Low Ghost Press, and that's uh, a press that the same buddy, Chris Collins, started on his own. And so uh, he just uh, started that up, and a couple of books in, he said, uh, you know, I'd like to do a book with you sometime. And so so we did that book. And then uh, White Gorilla, so the Muskrat book is on White Gorilla, and uh, that one, my uh, this guy, no, uh, this guy I know locally, Dave Newman. Uh, he's uh, he's got two books on White Gorilla, and so I just wrote the editor after his second one. I wrote the editor uh, an email saying how much I really appreciated uh, the the work he was publishing, uh, specifically the Dave Newman books, and so uh, and then eventually I was like. Yeah, I should pitch that guy a book. <laughs> so uh, I kind of started corresponding with him after I had sent him like a fan letter, and then at one point I was like, "If you ever need uh, another another book, uh, I, I think I'm just about finishing up one." So <laughs> cool. Well, and so you, ref- worked out. <laughs> you refer to it as the Muskrat book. I'm looking at it right here, and it's called Muskrat Friday Dinner Poems by Scott Silsby. So, so tell our audience a little bit about. Why you have a muskrat book? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. How about I um I could read a, a couple of poems from it, including the title poem, and the, the title sure. poem will explain why okay. it's a muskrat book. Okay. <laughs> All right. So here's the title poem: Muskrat Friday Dinner. In Downriver Detroit, they are a delicacy of sorts. Those odd river rafts you see in marshes and boat harbors and in all the swampy regions along the Detroit River. There's a story that claims the Catholics of Down River wrote a letter to the Pope and got a special dispensation allowing them to eat muskrat on Fridays during Lent, though from what I've heard, there's no documentation. My grandfather thinks it goes back to the 1930s when during the Depression, people couldn't afford fish. It seems like everybody downriver has a muskrat story. Some folks think eating muskrat was started hundreds of years ago by French-Canadian trappers. And some remember having it every year for Christmas Eve dinner. When my father was growing up in Rockwood, fur coats made of muskrat were in fashion. And he remembers that once in his teens, he trapped the muskrat, killed it, skinned it, and got a whopping 75 cents for the pelt. Actually, my father tells me that in Downriver, it's pronounced mush rat and refers not only to the murky little water rat, but also to all South Detroiters who live in the marsh areas and who order themselves a plate of mush rat at Dom Polsky's on Oak Street, at Kola's Kitchen, or at the Polish League of American Veterans Hall. Johnny Kolakowski, or Kola as he is known by most, the self-proclaimed muskrat king, started Cola's Kitchen out of a bowling alley and now runs Cola's Food Factory in Riverview. Gets them from some Canadian trapper since the FDA doesn't have any muskrat inspectors. <laughs> Cola says that the best part is the hind legs and says that most people agree they're cleaner than chickens. I have had turtle and I used to love a plate of frog legs, but I have never had muskrat. My paternal grandmother had some just once. And when she told what she, she threw it up. My father had some just once, too. I ask him what it tasted like. And he tells me, it's like eating a guinea pig, that it's gamey, 
and oily, darker than chicken and similar to frog legs, since there are many small bones. This will keep the nut. Have the slogan about mushrat. It went, nothing quite as tasty as a plate of rats. <laughs> and uh, that's, it's so weird and delightful to think about, you know, this is the tradition in this area. <laughs> but I, I want to yeah. ask you about your dad says it's like eating a guinea pig. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. tell me about that. <laughs> it's kind of horrifying to me thinking your dad is telling you this and some of us as children had guinea pigs as pet never as dinner right. <laughs> right 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 yeah no that uh also autobiographical i just it's it was one of those things that uh i mean i i i, I noticed it when i was you know growing up uh, just south of Detroit as like a, a thing that people did. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, years in Pittsburgh that I was like, that I recognized it being a, a weird thing. <laughs> that, you know, that eating these, eating these rats was kind of a delicacy in Detroit. And um, so I was like, well, I should write a poem about that. Cause I don't think everybody realize you know, I don't think people uh, worldwide recognize how, uh, Traders love to eat rats, uh, so <laughs> so I just started making notes, and then I asked my dad. I I should ask my dad about it and ask him uh, what what it, if he ever had it and what it what it tasted like to him. You know, so those are pretty much true. <laughs> <laughs> the things parents say. <laughs> <laughs> It's so fun. And like thinking about these weird traditions, and in this sense, I'm thinking this would be a tradition of people who were lower income in, in this. And I realized during the Depression, that was pretty much everybody. But I guess there were some people who considered themselves of a different socioeconomic class. And the idea of eating muskrat would never occur. And, and, right. and so then I, then I that, see that carries me to Lawrence, Kansas, where um, there's a a lovely woman, Barbara higgins over who has really done a lot of research and created this museum about um, what the people who were called the River Kings. So these were guys who fished on the Kansas River um, and probably mostly for racist reasons were that the fishing they were doing was outlawed um, as these were mostly but not exclusively African-American men who were doing this. Um, but, but one of the stories that she remembers from growing up is that so her grandparents, um, obviously they ate fish that, that he pulled out of the river and that her grandmother saved the um, whatever kind of fat she fried the catfish in and reused it. And one of the ways that she reused it was in baking um, pies and cookies. And that that when when Barbara, as a young person, realized that she'd been eating cookies basically made out of catfish, she was appalled. <laughs> yeah, she also recognized that they were particularly delicious. <laughs> oh man, catfish, yeah, catfish cookies, huh? 
<laughs> and it was really this the 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 oil. It wasn't like pieces of catfish, but still the the idea that that the catfish oil or whatever you know the Crisco whatever they cook the catfish in lard maybe who knows was also right, right. with the, the catfish. You know, it's like so so there are regional foods. <laughs> And there's, there's culture, so, yeah. you know, and there's culture that's that's embedded in that, you know, you your yeah. mom includes that, you know, that maybe, you know, I was thinking, well, why would why would muskrat be a substitute for fish? It's like, well, because their water, they they live in this water area, so you know, they're fish right. by association. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so so muskrat Friday dinner is is a phrase that would mean something to people to a lot of people in Detroit. They would get what that means. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they would they would recognize that. Especially yeah. from downriver regions. Uh you know, you drive around and you'll see signs that'll say, you know, like muskrat Friday or or, you know, muskrat dinner here, you know. <laughs> like <laughs> still? Like, still people do that? Yep, yep, they still do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Very interesting. Muskrat Friday dinner. Okay, cool. So, so this would you would you say that this whole book, this collection of poems, is in that sense regional? That that that's you know that that these are all sort of that part of Detroit centric. No, actually, um, I've been in Pittsburgh for the last uh, seventeen years now, so. Um, I'd say the majority of the poems actually kind of come from living in Pittsburgh. Um, there's some, there's some like Detroit and downriver Detroit stuff uh, in the book, but I think probably most of it is, is Pittsburghy. Okay. Um, uh, but I, I guess maybe that that idea of like the kind of regional weirdness is uh, something that strikes my fancy, uh-huh. and so. And so I think that uh, even the Pittsburgh poem, uh, even if they're not about muskrats, uh, in this book, you know, it's just, it's just kind of that idea of like taking the the, the weird local things that I notice, you know, and uh-huh. capturing them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those stories that need to be told. Cool. And you mentioned I think maybe you have a couple picked out that you want to read. So I don't I don't want to yeah. that from happening. Yeah. Okay. So what's next? Yeah, let me read a couple more. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Okay, here's one called Katie Birthday Poem. We go from Lou's little corner bar to the Elks on the north side for banjo night and to see Lori and Katie. It's Katie's birthday, and she's had some birthday drinks, which makes her face a little red and which makes her even more affectionate than she already is. At the far end of the Elks, the stage is filled with some 20 or so old-timers playing banjos, and we give Katie presents at the back by the bar, but it's hard to hear what she's saying over the banjos, so she just tugs us both, and Laurie goes to the bar to get us drinks. Someone has baked an intricate cake replica of the Elks Club with a stage made out of frosting and little candy banjo players. Now a woman with a feather boa is singing along with the music. A trumpet player rises up from behind the rows of banjos to solo. The song ends. The Elks erupts with applause. 
it's the last song. Most of the players pull out their cases and pack up instruments. Some don't want the music to stop, so they gather around a piano near the bar and croon a few more with a washed tub bass player. That the world is full of these people and these things is at times nearly beyond comprehension. Also that we too are a part of it. We used to say, I don't want to live forever. But now we say, living is better than anything else that we have ever known. We wake each day and are grateful. We are goddamn lucky. That's really true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I noticed a friend bemoaning on a picture of herself that she said, I, I feel ancient, and she's not ancient. And I was thinking, I, I didn't have a kind way of saying it, but what I was thinking is every one of those days lived as part of your beauty, you know, and I'm so glad you're here. I, I don't want to negate the way she was feeling, you know, so I don't want to like this false thing, but it's like, man, our options are we get older or we die. And when we, uh, that opportunity to embrace days and be glad we're here. <laughs> yeah. Have the opportunity yeah. to help other people be glad we're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Birthdays. The banjo, the banjo, the idea of the banjo players and the woman in the feather boa, that that image is like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things that you just see and you're like, I think I gotta document this. I gotta get this down. <laughs> Banjo is an instrument of its own kind. <laughs> the loudest instrument I've ever heard is is a, a bagpipe. It's incredibly loud. Unless you've been close to one, you probably don't realize that. But of the stringed instruments, banjo is the one that's for the, the way it's made, the loudest of the stringed instruments that I've ever been exposed to. And that was quite a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, the band and that they have all of these guys playing, uh, and it's just like it's so it, when it, when you have that like you know a symphony of twenty plus banjos going, it's just like over uh, overwhelmingly loud. Yeah, yeah, and imagining this in a small bar. Yeah, right. <laughs> So delights that we get to share by experiencing your poetry. And I think that you have more that you're ready to share. Yep, I've got another one ready. Um, right. The Disappearing Quasar. It could stay like this for hours, or it could all vanish in an instant. July ball and a rain delay, juke speakers pumping out some ELO, the loud drunks behind us asking each other how fast clouds travel. We talk jazz with the woman tending bar at the Shamrock Inn, and she says, I don't like it when they fly. Tells us Chet Baker was the first trumpeter to ever play and sing. When we ask her about Louis Armstrong, she says, I never really cared for him. And I like that, that our opinions of things can change history. Today may just be the day. I'm watching the sweat on her can on her beer, and an old Motown song comes on, one with a key change that always makes my brain burn a little. Jay leaves, saying he has to go see a man about a dog, but he's speaking in code, I think. I say, I'm sorry I missed it, but I'm glad we got documentation. 
We decided that it might be time to ease off the pedal a little bit. Mark said Frank's a fan of our stuff, but Frank's in the minority. Because of the weather, it seems there are many things to be done. Some go to an alleyway in Garfield for a summertime soul party. Some go down to the overpass to watch the cars on the freeway. I wish I could go to a nursery and sit among plants, sipping a brew, listening to a friend play old Rocky Erickson and Beach Boys tunes, and musing on the disappearing quasar I learned about on the radio. But I'll head south to the auction to hunt down books on guns and moon. Last night, gun books haunted all of my dreams. Shots fired in anger. A rifleman went to war. In the gun room, the rifle and how to use it. When I tell my boss about my gun book dreams, he says, my life. Wow. <laughs> As somebody who's somewhat terrified of guns, that's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, uh, they are collectible, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, so that's true. A, that's a work poem of sorts, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you know, and like we say, yeah, they're collectible. And, of course, that takes me on a whole other other stream of, yeah, actually, I have a brother who's a surgeon who's collected guns for a long time, and I never could understand that. Like, so you <laughs> fix people who've had these terrible things happen with guns, and you love to shoot them and collect them. This is very interesting to me. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he would tease me about that because because he'd say, you know, I'm going to give guns to your kids. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Happy Christmas to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the the lady who doesn't like Louis Armstrong, I'm like, who doesn't like Louis Armstrong? That that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, so this is this is me loving your your work because there are these things that that take me in all these directions, these characters, the things that people say and do in in your poems and in real life, you know. And, and this this truth is that happens to me in real life too. So I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. So, like, when you were do you do you work on a collection of poetry like? Like Muskrat Friday dinner, did you did you kind of realize that you were headed towards something that was going to go together, or does it kind of come together after you look at some things you've written? Um, yeah, it it kind of evolves. I mean, I I, I start working on poems, and then I kind of come up with an idea uh, for a book, and the the idea evolves over time, uh -huh. and um, so. Actually, my idea with this book was uh, to have a book in three sections, so have it be kind of thematically wine, women, and song. So have a, a, a section, uh, a section on drinking of drinking poems, a section of love poems, and a, a, a section of uh, poems about music. Um, and but I thought they were all alcohol poems, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of alcohol poems. But, uh, but anyway, that was my initial idea for this book, and it just kind of expanded and, and bloated until it was uh, there was a section of work poems, and then kind of the sections, yeah, they kind of bled together. So there are, there are love poems that are also drinking poems, et cetera. <laughs> And those lovely muskrat illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There are lovely muskrat illustrations. 
which will never be the same to me. I don't know that I've ever seen a muskrat, but I might have because we've, we've taken up kayaking. And I remember one particular time, it's like, I don't know what that is on the side, you know, on the back there. It's not, uh-huh. Yeah, that might be what it was. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we didn't cook any to see if they taste like guinea pig. Not that I'd know what that tasted like. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So, so do you have a sense of of where your next collection might, or what your next collection might be, sort of themed around? There's something that you're consciously working on, or you are. You um, I have I have some yeah, I have some ideas, um, but they're kind of still getting fleshed out in my head. So, mm-hmm. I have um, a handful of poems that are like uh, poems about other poets. Um, so, I think that I'm. I might try and do like a chapbook of of those, um, and they they might end up being in a in the next full length, and then um, but the next full length it feels like it's still a, a little ways off. So mm-hmm. I've got poems I poem ideas for it, and I've got poems written for it, and um, it feels like it might uh, have a little bit more of a political ilk than previous poetry of mine. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, just kind of you know, trying to mentally process what's going on politically in this day and age. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's still kind of, um, still kind of coming together in my head. So, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> so it's going to be a little while, I think. And I think you, you mentioned that, that the poems about other poets might start as a chapbook and then that might, that chapbook might become part of a collection. Is that, yeah. is that, is yeah, that, I, I kind of, that's kind of what I foresee yeah, happening. Yeah, is that is that a, a common way for you with the three books that you've done? Has has any of those been published in part as chapbooks before they became full collections? Um, just um, unattended fire. Um, okay. My my first book, um, where I I was just kind of starting out, and so I just self published a couple of chapbooks. Mm-hmm. And they ended up um, coming together with some other poems to be that first book. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, so I've kind of used that before, but it's been a while. <laughs> uh huh. And I, I didn't know. I, I remember somebody else talking about, uh, and I think it was Rob Plath's first book of poetry, "A Bellyful of Anarchy," that that was originally a, a series of chapbooks that uh, Wolfgang Karsten's published together as a, a big poetry collection. Uh-huh, and so yeah. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't asked anybody before if that was a common thing or, you know, if that was, you know, just sometimes it's the right thing to do. I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And you, yeah. you right. obviously do some readings in public, including, you know, like we talked about earlier in the show, you were in Kansas City in April for yep. the Kansas City Poetry Throwdown. I think you've got something coming up soon. Is that right? Um, yeah, I've got uh, a couple of. I'm trying to do some out of town, uh, some out of town readings. Um, so um, I've got one uh, coming up in. Let's see, what's next? <laughs> I, I don't have my schedule handy, so I can't. Uh, I think I'm thinking that you might have told me that you have something come up in uh, Philadelphia. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's. I think it's the first Monday. Uh, of October. <laughs> here, here. Actually, I, I, I wrote down the information. So, so you're okay, going to be great. in Philly, 
Sure. With uh, Jameson Fails. He used to be in Kansas City. Hey, Jameson. That's right. Jason Bollinger, yep. you and Nathaniel Williams Stolte. Cool. And Monday, yep. October 9th. Uh, there we go. Thank you. Says, that's that'll be the second Monday. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And that one, there's a Facebook event for it that's called PBQ Presents. And then right. So, okay, so what's PBQ? Yeah, that, so that's the first time I've ever read. Uh, that'll be the first time I've ever read in Philadelphia. Oh, so I'm excited cool. about that. Uh-huh. And um, a cool yeah, set of um, people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Jameson. Uh, yeah, Jameson recently moved here to Pittsburgh and he's been setting up a bunch of readings and inviting me along. And so, um, so it's been good because I feel like I've been able to get the muskrat out there a little bit. Uh, in, <laughs> that sounds kind of a New Jersey. Well, you, you might be careful how you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so we were at in New Jersey uh, last month and yeah, uh, Philly um, next month, and then I think we've got one coming up in Toledo uh, okay. as well. But that, okay. that's not till November, I don't yeah. think. And so, are, are you saying some of those are with Jameson and some other poets? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, very cool. Jameson is a great connector, bringing sets of people together and performing in different places. That's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. And and I don't I, at the at this very moment I I actually have done shows with all four of you that'll be in Philadelphia for that oh, nice. night and and at this very moment um, I guess I'm more thinking of Jameson's work I I know Jameson um, I uh, in a more fully than than I know Jason or Nathaniel and so I'm thinking you know this will be an example of some very different styles of poetry. Jameson's poetry yeah. is very different than yours. And, yeah. and to me, like, that's something I really love is when there is this diversity of tone and style in, in different sets of readings, you know, and, and that reminder that, that there's not just one kind of poetry that's contemporary poetry. Um, and and it's, it's, a, it's a cool yeah. experience, you know. And, yeah, and for like, sure. As I've said to some people, there, there are some poets who – who whose work I you know it just resonates better with me you know like like as I've made it clear and this is very genuine I really love the stories that I get in your poems you know so so mm-hmm. for me sitting down and reading your poetry it's very accessible you know and that's that's part of the the, the characters and stories very working class so accessible in that kind of way which is yeah. really fun and engaging for me somebody else's poetry may be more kind of esoteric. There may be um, a lot of language and words that, uh, I mean, and, and references that I won't necessarily actually get, you know, somebody else right. will tell me the poetic form they're using. is like, okay, the only one that stuck with me is it's not the poetic form, but it's, it's related to books. The phrase ekphrastic poetry. I like this the way it sounds. <laughs> Uh-huh, yes. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's that thing of, you know, that combination of art and poetry right. informing each other, which I also think is very cool. But, you You're know, right, there, right. there are lots of complicated structures of poetry that have very specific labels. It's like, okay, I don't, I don't know about that. You know? <laughs> I just know right. what I like. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and I say that, and, I, and I'm very serious, and I'm also saying it in a silly way, because I think sometimes people 
hear that word poetry, and if they haven't been around, like in in readings that are going on currently that are you know that are more mix of genres. Um, they may have this, you know, this idea that I always think about one friend who said, you know, well, when I think about poetry, I think of it being really serious, you know, and I'm supposed to sit in an armchair with a lamp and a cup of tea. He's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> you can if you want to, but you don't right, have to. Exactly, you can, but you don't have to. <laughs> right. And, we are amazingly, as always happens, we are at the end of our hour, Scott. So, so we're going to have to say goodbye to our listeners. I want them to know that this delightful hour has been with Scott Silsby, and and I hope that my enthusiasm, both for our conversation and for Scott's books, I hope that's something that people will really be thinking about. Like, it's like maybe I should check this guy out. This this the poetry is delightful. You've got some performances in the eastern part of the country coming up. Um, I'm thinking people can find those in part if they if they catch you on so, social media. And um, you mentioned that some of the readings you're doing are with Jameson Bales. And so since Jameson Bales is also on social media, you might be able to find things through him. And, and I want to say again, there are three books and three small presses. And folks, those are the ways to get your books. Man, they're so cool. If you can get a at a reading, you know, if you're at one of those cities, or if you can get them from the small press, if you can get your local indie bookseller to get it. The three books are Unattended Fire from Sixth Gallery Press, The River Underneath the City from Low Ghost Press, Muskrat Friday Dinner, the newest from White Gorilla Press. So thank you, Scott Silsby. Thanks so much for having me, Marcia. It's been a blast. And thank you to our producer, Daniel Smith, Listeners, we welcome you to come back for more episodes of Talk With Me, and so long for now.